Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Hello, friends. Welcome again today to another episode of the Pinkleton Pull Aside Podcast, where we would like to talk all things in worlds of sports, of movies as of late, comedy, authors, pastors, comedians, so many things. And uh, today I'm really blessed to have on all the way across the pond. I think that's at least what they would say about us across the pond from America. I get to say that overseas in English territory with Glenn Scrivener, who has a book out that's really made a pop called The Air I Breathe. Welcome, Glenn. Hey, thanks for having me. I, I just got to say, it's just great just hearing your voice sound like it does. I'm like, you know, being in Ohio, we're right. They call it the heart of it all. We don't get a lot of mm. accents sometimes and hearing someone from across the seas, it sounds. I don't have an accent. You've got the accent. <laughs> that's true. Sounds I so... speak perfectly normally. That's right. It sounds so good to my soul. So I got to say that right out of the gate. So back to what I was saying. So you were super easy. My founding pastor, Grant Edwards, who's been on this podcast, had a blog post. He started writing kind of in his next stage of life. And he talked about this book to read this summer. And what I saw of it and trusting him, I thought, well, this looks like an interesting book. You and I got connected on Twitter. You were super easy to deal with. You got me hooked up with your assistant. And here we are talking. And um, here we are. Yeah. Your book is fascinating to me. I had a couple guys read it as well. And they were kind of fascinated as well by your style. We, we talked about, as we were reading it, uh, it felt in each chapter like you were about ready to go rogue on us, and you were deconstructing in the chapter, and then you always hit it with a home run on the way back to really bring things back to a, a very gospel, moving Jesus forward in the kingdom of God kind of way. Is that How do you feel when you hear me say that? I hate reading books that don't seem to be going anywhere. So I, yeah, my, my style is very much, I want to grab the reader by the throat, every paragraph and my, my attention, I've got monkey mind. So if the author that I'm reading doesn't absolutely grab me and, you know, try and twist things around and, you know, say you thought this, but actually it's that, <laughs> um, if the, if the author I'm reading doesn't do that, I, I will abandon books. There are so many, you know, probably most of the books on my bookshelf I've started and not finished. How many of those? Uh, because, sorry, I, I would say most most of the books that I really? begin, I don't actually end up finishing. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know why you would slog through a book where mm -hmm. the author just is phoning it in. It's just, you know, do, doesn't seem to be wanting to to grip the reader so that's that's definitely that that stylistic choice because i'm i'm writing i'm writing for my non-christian friends i'm writing for non-christian family members i've got them in mind and i know that they they are not going to stick with me if i am not absolutely grabbing them by the throat and making sure they turn the next page so that's 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 my goal so i want you i want to pick up on what you said so you talk about phoning it in and i think as mm -hmm. people hear this if they're critiques critics of books and authors probably people are going to lean in and say, yeah, people phone it in quite a bit. In a very broad, robust way, what does phoning it in look like? What all can that entail by an author to phone it in? 
I think it's it's a term that's often used of actors in movies, you know, like so you'll get you'll get some brilliant uh, performances by Robert De Niro, but then there there are a few movies where he's just he's just picking up the paycheck, and you know he's just picking up the paycheck. He's not doing a raging bull for you. He's not doing a taxi driver for you. He's doing a, a lesser role in a franchise movie, and in one sense, the the book writing market in the UK is just it's not sufficient for for anyone to to just you do this as a hobby there just isn't there just aren't enough christians over here and so what what i do you know find a lot in in the states is is you've got a much bigger marketplace for christian you know christian living books mm -hmm. as these sort of christian paperbacks there's much more of a market in the states whereas in in the uk you've got to kind of fight and scrap it out for <laughs> for whatever publishing contracts that there are so yeah i i I absolutely don't want to waste anybody's time because wow. I I know I don't have I don't have time <laughs> to yeah. read books where the where the author is is not engaged and so I I just want every sentence to make make an impact. Mm. Do you feel like for you would phoning it in be writing just a simple Christian living book that you would hope would take hold in the states because I guess it'd be tough to write a Christian living book if you're saying there's minimal audience overseas for that. Yeah. And you know, and there there are a lot of great pastors who have a sermon series, and they've preached ten sermons through the Book of Ephesians. And it turns out that you know, they, yeah. eighteen months later, a book comes out with ten chapters that mm -hmm. looks remarkably like the sermons that they they just preached. And that would be an example of that. Now, there are a lot of great books that have come through that process, but spoken English is not written English, and written mm -hmm. English is not spoken English. And if you're if you're going to turn your book, you know, from a sermon series into into a book, you've got to do a lot more work than that. Sure. Than just sort of getting some assistant to tidy up your your sermon manuscript. So based on what you're trying to do, who are people you like that maybe um, are are people who are trying to be about the kingdom of God and point people to Jesus? Uh, maybe their audience is a little bit more like you're trying to do on the non-Christian side versus the Christian side. But who are a couple people maybe you look at and you say, yes, they grab Glenn by the throat. They're taking me all the way. And I love their writing. Who, who are a couple of examples? There's a, there's a guy, Andrew Wilson, who I've just I've just done, done a um, podcast series with him. Uh, he is another UK author. Uh, he's just written a book actually about 1776 about the the remaking of your world mm. and our two books they really gel together because he he's kind of talking about the historical impact of Christianity he's focusing everything down to 1776 and saying this this was a a date that not only through the declaration of independence but through so many different features of the post-christian world has formed the world that we're in and he he is definitely an author who is trying to grab you by the throat every every page Rebecca McLaughlin is a, just a terrific uh, author again, uh, confronting Christianity and many many books like that. Francis Spufford um, is a book where I don't agree with everything he says in this tremendous book called Unapologetic, but it is written for non Christians in mind, and he is he's an author who made his living as an author first, and then came to Christ later in life, and then tried to explain to all his secular friends why he is the Christian that he is, and he is just a sensational writer. So, um, yeah, there are, there are lots of people, and and I, you know, I'm not worthy to untie the shoelaces of of, of those guys, but that's what I aim for. Mm. I, I aim for something that's gripping. 
Yeah. Wow. That's so encouraging. You give me a few people I want to look at now to check out their books. I'm looking at that 1776 one now. It's looks like it's not out yet called yeah. Remaking uh, the World. Yeah. Um, yeah. Out September. But yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And our, our podcast about it is uh, is coming out in October. Awesome. Well, we will definitely uh, get that out there to people who check this out. So give us, Glenn, your three minute testimony. How did you come to Jesus? What was he doing to get you there? And and uh, hmm. what did that look like? So uh, a church-going household, I grew up in, I'm uh, the youngest of three, and I was the good little boy who was always the peacemaker and always trying to be cute. And so I would go along to church and Sunday school, and I would, you know, put my hand up in the air and I would get the answer right, because I would say Jesus, and, and that <laughs> seems to please people. And as a good little people pleaser, I decided to keep being a people pleaser. And so it it sort of it was only a surface level thing really. And I guess if we're going to do the three minute version, I'll cut to the chase. I, I gave my life to Jesus about a thousand times in my teenage years, constantly rededicating myself to, my, myself to Jesus. And it never seemed to work because I never felt like he had accepted me here. I was mm. offering my life to God had God accepted me. I didn't really know. So I left home to go to college and tried to have as good a time as I could without Jesus really. Mm. And then it was at the end of my college year, my years. So my final year, I remember I was desperate to play cricket for the university. So I was, I was at Oxford. And if you play against Cambridge in the varsity game at the end, you mm. get to play at Lords, which is, you know, the place to, to play cricket, the home of cricket. And, uh, and I fell agonizingly short of that. And, you know, there's, there's the saying, you, you never look up until you're flat on your back. And there I was flat on my back and a friend's, invited me again to church and having said no to him for my in, entire student career, I finally said yes. And I went along to church and I hated the preacher and I went back to the Sunday following to hate the preacher some more and then hate, some, hate the preacher some more, but something was working on me. And I have a wonderful praying mother who for two decades wow. was, was praying for her son. And uh, at some point by the end of that year, um, I'd opened up the Bible and I was in, I was encountering the Jesus of the Gospels, mm. and that that absolutely turned my life right side up, actually. Um, suddenly, I'd always believed in this distant God, but meeting Jesus, I was like, mm. ah, he's the one it's all about. And, and as soon as I kind of met this surprising, stooping Lord who would die for me, um, at the end of my, my university um, career, I kind of uh, got down on my knees and said, Jesus, no, you're Lord, and, that, and that's good news. I think I think I had thought that Jesus is Lord was just all right. I will kind of shoulder the burden wow. of Jesus being boss, and then I was reading in the Gospels about who Jesus actually is. And I was, oh, he's actually amazing. Mm. <laughs> and if he's if he is Lord, then he is what God is like, and he's in charge of the world, and he's the one leading me. This is good news, and suddenly it struck me: it's good news that Jesus is Lord. And that was about twenty years ago, and I've been following ever him ever since. Wow. There's so much about that. I just love, and I can see where you are definitely grab the bull by the horns and, and run with it probably in every area of your life. So let me ask you, let's get more into, a little bit more into this book. So like I said, my pastor Grant from decades, my pastor said, this is the book he was encouraging people to read. Why do you think, uh, so here's a guy, you know, miles and miles, ocean of water away from you. Why this book? Why now? Why would he say that? And within that, what's been your biggest encouragement you've received about this book? And what's been your biggest pushback? Mm. So it's a book that says um, the air we breathe 
is invisible to us and we live by the air that we breathe and yet we don't notice it and i'm saying that morals and our kind of our framework for looking at the world our gut instincts our intuitions about the way the world works is like the air that we breathe it seems perfectly obvious and natural and universal to us and we think that the kind of outlook we have on the world is surely what everybody else has whether it's other parts of the world or other times in history. And what I want to say in the book is absolutely not. If you live in the West, you have been Christianized to an incredible degree such that you believe in things like equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. Those seven chapters are the the heart of my book. Mm -hmm. And none of those values are obvious, natural, or universal. They seem really obvious to us, but that's only because the Jesus revolution has utterly shaped our moral vision of, of the world. And so I basically take people back to um, pre-Christian times and the Roman Empire and things like that and show the way in which equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress are utterly nonsensical to those kinds of, of cultures and the ways in which the Jesus revolution has gripped us and and, and shown us a completely different vision for life. And and I guess I've seen people really wake up to the fact that they are already believers. Mm. So um, I one of the people I had in mind as I was writing was a, a, a friend of mine. I'll call her Sally. I call her Sally in the book. It's not a real name, but but she wrote me a letter and, and, and she said, uh, of course, you realize, Glenn, I could never be a believer. And she seemed to have this idea that there are people who are able to take a leap of faith like me. And then there are rational people like her. And and sometimes she looks at me as a believer and she thinks that she dodged a bullet because mm. she's a rational person. And I'm not. Sometimes she looks at me and she thinks I, I hit the jackpot mm. and she didn't. But she thinks of me as a different brand of human being who is able to believe. And, and really, I've written this book for her and for many people like her to show her you already but if you believe in human rights and human equality and and um the the inviolable dignity of each individual if you believe in equality and, and con- compassion and consent and all these these different things then you already um believe in things that that are not provable scientifically or mathematically those are beliefs and those beliefs have come to you through the Jesus revolution aka christianity and so i've seen lots of people like her wake up to the facts that oh i guess i am a believer and i guess a lot of what i believe comes from jesus and and i've had some of those people come to christ through that you know there's a section at the end of the book where i sort of say why don't you open up the gospels and why don't you read through and, and meet Jesus? Cause he's made your world. So why don't you meet your maker? Mm. And I, I know of people who have done that people who are in church. Now I was, I was preaching the other day uh, in a church, a couple of hundred miles away from, from where I am. And this guy came up to me afterwards and he says, I'm here cause I read your book and, and I, you know, finished and you told me to read the gospels. And <sighs> when I'd done that, it, you said, go to church. And so here I am in church. I was like, well, that's fantastic. And so that's, that's fantastic. I think the pushback that people sometimes have on the book is they'll often say, Glenn, if you say Christianity has given us equality and compassion, et cetera, the church can sometimes be the most bigoted place, the most cruel place, the most coercive place. How, how can you say Christianity has given us these things? And, that, and, and I completely anticipate that, that pushback. And I, I talk about it quite a bit in the book. Still people kind of, kind of bring it. And, and I think the thing I say to people at that stage is, Jesus has given us a beautiful song to sing. 
sometimes Christians are the worst at singing it. Mm. Sometimes, you know, we hit all the wrong notes and you can hear, and it's, and it's worst when a Christian sings the song badly. And, and we, we ought to be the ones who sing most in tune. And often we can be the most discordant voices. And sometimes it's people from outside the church that need to point that out to us. And we should welcome it mm. when they do. But however badly we sing the song, the song is still good. And when I speak in those terms, I think people kind of get, get the sense. I'm not saying that Christians are brilliant. I'm not at all saying that. <laughs> but I am saying that Christ and his revolution is brilliant. And why don't we all come on home to his revolution and say, yeah, we get it wrong. But Jesus, will you teach us to sing your song? I so want to hear you have a conversation if he was still living with Gandhi, since he's obviously famous for that quote about, you know, I, I like your Jesus. It's these Christians kind of not so much. I'm paraphrasing greatly there, but be fun yeah. to see you have a conversation with him because I think there's naturally a, a well-researched, well-read, well-thought-out, not afraid to acknowledge things we need to acknowledge approach you have that I think is very winsome. Let me ask you this, kind of staying a little bit in what you were saying there towards the end. You know, as Christians, we're constantly considering how to answer questions about Christianity, about Jesus, and really how to defend our faith. How do you think your approach to defending faith differs from other philosophical approaches of faith that have been tried to be defending in the past? What is hmm. different about what you're doing? I guess I'm trying to point out the fact that the the other person who might not consider themselves to be a believer— is already a believer in something. And I'm not trying to say that there's neutral ground between me and the other person. And what they need to do is to, you know, I, I need to lay out some stepping stones. So that's, um, so, I, so I, I, I like what um, Tom Wright has sort of said about, you know, so many, so many arguments for the existence of God. I like, I like shining a flashlight at the sun. Mm -hmm. It's this idea that the sun already has a radiance. The sun already has a brilliance to it. And we need to sort of, we need to pay attention to what is already true to, to the light that is already all around us, rather than to start creating arguments for God's existence. And so I guess my, my approach is constantly when the non-Christian, especially if the non-Christian has objections to Christian faith is basically to join them in those critiques and to say to them, look, you have just accused the church of being uh, unequal, cruel, coercive, unenlightened, anti-science, restrictive, and regressive. And the shoe fits a lot of the time. But all you've done has been to reverse the seven values that I speak about in the book, equality, mm -hmm. compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. All the objections we hear about what Christianity is like is, is, is basically assuming the moral structure that Jesus has already given us. <laughs> we assume equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, progress. When we say that the church is unequal, cruel, coercive, unenlightened, anti-science, restrictive, and regressive. And so what I want to do is kind of join the critic shoulder to shoulder with them. Mm. And I can point the finger with them at the church and say, oh, it's even worse than you say. Actually, <laughs> they're, they're, I know, you know, it's, it's like when, when people sort of have a go at your family, <laughs> you're sort of like, oh man, yeah. I can tell you stories about my family. <laughs> um, and you can sort of, you can sort of agree to some degree, but at some point you point at your shoes and you say, where are we standing in order to have this problem with the church over there? 
and what we're standing on are some moral foundations that you have no right to hold without Jesus. And that so that that's kind of my approach to to sort of to do a kind of a judo move, as yeah. as people say, um, the, the the church can be cruel. You're like, oh, sometimes yes, but what made us think that compassion was the highest ideal that we ought to attain to? Mm-hmm. Um, and we we get into conversations like that. Yeah, I like how how you don't. It's not a right wrong, yes no black white. Let's go one extreme to the other it's like hey let's go on this journey i like how you said the side by side thing let's kind of okay yeah i like the family analogy because we could all relate to that oh you think you know my oh i'll tell you even more than that type of thing um (laughs) let me jump into so my friend ryan had a great question for you and it's it's a little it's long here but let me get to this he said the graphic description of societal control in the roman world and assumed inequality of individuals and people groups that you have in chapter one he said is vitally instructive we clearly breathe different, yet more subtly subverse air that, although charged with or changed from Roman times, still maintains a hidden inequality. How has writing that chapter in particular and deeply contemplating these historical dichotomies changed your approach to your own individual place in the world? Yeah, well, one way to show you that the air that you breathe is not natural and not universal is to leave the atmosphere that you're in and to go and breathe some different kind of an air. So uh, like I grew up in Australia and I, I live in the UK now, but whenever I fly back into Sydney, it always strikes me how sweet the air smells because we've got so many eucalyptus trees and they just, they're just mentholating the air. It's like a cough syrup carry, carried mm. upon the breeze. It's very sweet air, but I never noticed how Sydney smelt when I was in Sydney. I have to leave Sydney and then come back into it. And in the book, what I do is kind of leave our modern Western assumptions by going back to the Roman Empire. And then when you come back into this atmosphere, you breathe it very, very differently. The Roman Empire was absolutely founded not on equality and compassion, but, but on dominance and hierarchy. Absolutely. Absolutely it was. And there was this steep pyramid of being. And at the top were the gods and and then the emperor. And at the bottom, there are the slaves. And you find your place somewhere in that pecking order. And everything about your day-to-day existence is determined by you being less than that guy, but better than that guy, right? And that, that's the that's the entirety of your life, this inequality. Inequality is utterly assumed. And to them, inequality is natural because they just say, well, look at the natural world. The strong eat the weak in the natural world. Why would you think humans are any different? And you you take any two people and you judge them by any one measurement and you'll find that this guy is smarter than that guy. And this guy is stronger than that guy. This guy has more money than that guy. This guy is free. This guy's a slave. This guy is a citizen. This guy's a barbarian. In what sense are those two guys the same? They're, They're not equal. What do you mean equal? It would have been an utter nonsense to say to an ancient person that that there is an equality of all humans they would say well have you ever met humans <laughs> like like i can i can tell you a hundred different ways that this person is different to that person in what magical realm does this thing called equality exist and of course the way it came to us was through old testament you've got page one of the bible male and female in God's image, having dominion over the world. You know, humanity are not made to slave for the gods. Suddenly we're we're meant to rule and male and female in God's image equally together. And you come through into into the New Testament and you've got the the highest one from the the pyramid of power, Christ, 
descends to the deepest depth and dies the slave's death on the cross and then rises up to invite us all into his family where no one is Lord except him. And we're all brothers and sisters in the same family. Are you kidding me? Mm. And But now that's become the air we breathe. The, the idea that humanity is a family in which we're all brothers and sisters and no one is a Lord except Christ himself. That has become the air we breathe, but it is not a natural thought. It's not an obvious thought. It's not a universal thought by any means. And just going back to the Roman Empire and figuring out who were the people who put Christ to death. They are the people who believe in this dominance hierarchy. And an ancient person seeing Christ on the cross would identify with the centurion and not with the savior. Mm. They would identify with, with that end of the spear. Okay. As it gets thrust up into Christ's side, they would say, well, that's what happens to rebels and don't, don't go the way of rebellion. And yet for 2000 years, we've been meditating on Christ on the cross as the Lord who is giving himself for the weak and the unworthy. And, and it, it has completely reshaped our moral imagination. And, and so going, going back to the first century and going back to pre-Christian societies is really helpful in, in showing just what a revolutionary Jesus has been. And so that, that's, that's why I begin the book where I begin it. So let's, I don't think we talk sometimes enough with, with someone who writes something of significance like this is to like the start to really getting going on the process. So did you say, I'm going to write a book? And let's figure out what it's going to be. Did you get in your own personal life and ministry really passionate about seeing these things, these seven pieces of the puzzle kind of come together? What exactly was happening? And then how did you go about saying, okay, I'm going to really attack this? Because you seem like a really well-researched guy. So give us kind of the plan of the attack from thought of a book or thought of this and said, okay, this has to become a book or, you know, give us a couple of minutes of how that whole attack thing happened. I read in 2011 a, a book by an Indian thinker called Vishal Mangalwadi, and uh, his, his book was entitled The Book That Made Your World, and it was all about the Bible and how the Bible had completely shaped the West and was responsible for the peculiarity and the prosperity of the West. And he traces through all sorts of ways in which the Bible, in which Christianity has shaped all sorts of sensibilities. And that that was probably my my first real way into this particular topic. And and I got hooked really and I started reading all sorts of other people, whether they were Christians or not. And lots of lots of non-Christian academics are, are pointing this out. And I, I started reading Larry Seidentop, who's a political philosopher, just saying, you know, the way we conceive of all of politics, the way we conceive of all moral philosophy, the way we conceive of the the individual has been given to us by Christianity. He wrote a book called uh, Inventing the Individual. Oh, that's fascinating. And and then like in scientific realms, like Jonathan Haidt is a moral psychologist and he started write, writing this book called The Righteous Mind. And, and again, that was about 10 years ago, talking about how absolutely peculiar the West is and it's peculiar because of Christianity. And, and then um, another, you know, non-Christian evolutionary biologist called um, Joseph Henrik wrote a book called The Weirdest People in the World. And he, as a non-Christian, was just writing this book about we are weird in the West. And, and, and he used the acronym Western Educated Industrialized Rich Democratic. We are weird. And he says it's utterly Christianity that has led to the weirdness of the West. And then I read a historian called Tom Holland, not the, mm -hmm. not the Spider-Man actor, but the, <laughs> yeah. the really cool Tom Holland. 
is uh, this historian. He's a co-host of, of one of the biggest podcasts in the world. Uh, the rest is history podcast. And, um, and he wrote a massive book called Dominion, about 700 pages about the, the making of the Western mind. And it's all about how Christianity is the reason why every Westerner, whether you've ever been to church or not, whether you've ever even seen a Bible or not, you have been shaped by Jesus more than you've been shaped by any other historical mm. figure. And it's not even close. And so he he sort of wrote that massive book back in 2019. And I, I gave that book to my father-in-law as a Christmas present. I got Tom Holland to sign it. And I thought this is going to be a great Christmas present because my father-in-law is a great history buff and he's a reader. But at 700 pages, that big book <laughs> has remained on my father-in-law's yeah. shelf. And so I thought, I want to write a book that is more accessible and, and written from an explicitly Christian point of view. And so uh, The Air We Breathe is, is just kind of an, uh, an update on, on just those trends. And, and there's loads of Christians writing in this area, loads of non-Christians writing in this area. But there still is a work of popul popularizing this idea because a lot of people are just unaware of what in the academy is is assumed and taken for granted that christianity has utterly shaped the west and if we in the west want to move away from christianity we are engaged in a very dangerous experiment <laughs> and not not a lot of people are sort of popularizing that that message and so i, I thought well there's a book in it let's let's have a go I hope people really take hold of what you said there because you mentioned Tom Holland. Now, my son, who's 20 and has a podcast, it's all about movies. So he'd be talking about the Spider-Man, Tom Holland. But <laughs> And people I read and listen to, I've heard Dominion and that book talked about and other content with Tom, Todd uh, Holland a lot. And I know he endorsed mm -hmm. your book, which is pretty cool as well. So I hope people who mm -hmm. uh, like him have liked that, like what you're saying about a little bit lower access on the bookshelf coming from more of a Christian perspective. I, I think that's great. So um, let, let me do this. So when, when you think about this book, what are you most wanting people to do with it? Are you wanting them to be moved by it? And then what does that look like? Are they supposed to act? Are they supposed to speak particularly related to culture? How do you want people to move with what they do with this book? I identify three different audiences. One is the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S's, those who are asked on a survey, do you have a religion? And they say none. And so I, to such people like my friend Sally, who consider themselves to not be believers, I want to wake them up to the fact that you already believe, and so much of what you believe has been given to you by the Jesus Revolution. And then I want to speak to the Duns, the D-O-N-E-S's, those who are done with Christianity. Maybe they you know, grew up in the church or they went to a church school for you know, 13 years, and they feel like they're done with uh, Christian faith. And again, I want to say to them, you can't be done with Christianity any any more than you're done with the air that you breathe. And then uh, I talk about the ones, the W-O-N-Ns, the, those who have been won by the, the gospel of Jesus, who love Jesus. I, I want them to I want them to see that um, Jesus predicted this, you know, the Old Testament predicted this, Jesus predicted this, the apostles in the New Testament predicted that there would be this utter revolution that that goes out to the ends of the earth and changes everything for everyone. And it's such an unlikely revolution because you know, our leader was put to death on the cross. And the whole point of the cross is the Romans are basically saying, don't follow this guy. <laughs> this guy's a loser. And it turns out he is the greatest figure in human history 
and he has, he has pioneered the largest sociological phenomenon the world has ever seen. It's, it's the most inclusive, most diverse, <laughs> largest sociological phenomenon, and it's bigger today than it was yesterday, and it'll be bigger again tomorrow and bigger again the next day. This is an astonishing thing. And, and what I want people to do is kind of see that the expansion of the Christian universe can be traced back to an explosion mm. in the first century. You know, just just as we we figured out there was a big bang because there was a an expansion we could observe an expansion in, in the universe, and so we just wound back the clock and just thought, okay, there must have been an explosion mm. if there's an expansion, and you can do that historically. The, the without a doubt, the the greatest movement of people that the world has ever seen is the Christian Church, and it has exploded. How you know, and it's the most stunning thing. You know, from that cross where this guy chokes to death in shame from that weekend mm. you can trace an almighty explosion of spiritual power and i want christians to get excited about that i want non-christians to start asking questions about that i want people to engage with who is this man jesus so that I, so that people don't just have values they don't just believe in equality and compassion. They they believe in Jesus, who is compassion Himself, and it's it's that's a real um, burden of mine because I think we've become a very uh, moralistic society in which we we are very certain that bigotry is the worst thing in the world and cruelty is the worst thing in the world. We're very certain of of of, the, of our morality, but if if all you've got are these values like equality and compassion, values cannot forgive you. Mm. Only a person can forgive you. Only compassion himself can forgive you. I just, I just want to turn everyone back to Jesus and say, well, here is a much more attractive founding for our society, don't you think? And see, I, I, want, to, I want to say this very carefully because this is not something I just flippantly say when I've had people on who write books. I think we really need to pray for you and pray for the impact of this book because I, I, don't, I don't think if people dig into this, and I've, I've read most of it now. I've read the whole thing, but I've read most of it. Because what I've seen from the other couple of guys I know that have read it, what I'm feeling, what I hear from you, is this needs to be heard. This needs to be said. This needs to be something where that guy in a church 200 miles away from where you are right now said, hey, I did this. I did what you could encourage to do. I read. I started reading the Gospels, and here I am at a church. Because I think it's it, it really reminds me, as you're speaking, kind of the word awakening comes to my mind. It's, it's awakening what's already in people that they want in a pure-hearted, good way, but it's saying, okay, this is all about Jesus. This is Jesus is the reason why. And I, I think we need to not take lightly where you can go with this, where people getting a hold of this can go. Uh, I mean, I'm picturing you on college campuses, you know, debating, you know, an atheist or whoever, whoever it might be that you get a chance to really make a difference based on the words and the things you say. How, do, how does that hit you as I say that? Yeah. And I, I don't want it to just be me. I mean, let's, let's, let's have a dozen other books like this, this year, and then another dozen the next year, because it's like I say, it is a commonplace idea in the academy to say that the West is utterly Christianized. And yet on a popular level and, and on university campuses, people just think that things like human rights are natural and obvious and and I've found so I do a lot of work on on college campuses and, and I found that one of the most fruitful ways of engaging a conversation is just saying okay human rights let's figure out mm -hmm. do human rights exist why do human rights exist on what basis do they exist and you just get people kind of waking up like, oh my goodness yeah. I'm a believer <laughs> mm -hmm. and my beliefs are not based on 
you know, just mapping somebody's genome because your human rights are not written into your genome. It's a spiritual thing and you need to have a spiritual accounting for it. And I'm finding it incredibly fruitful. So absolutely. I'll take all the prayers Amen. that are coming my way. Thank you, Jeff. Amen. And, uh, and I really want lots more people uh, to be out there doing the same stuff and, yeah. and, and with the same message. So it's kind of built a discipleship tribe here. Cause I do think that this is a real element of discipleship. So it's kind of this being a, a tool in a discipleship process for people, whether that's churches, whether that's parachurches ministries, like what I do. And I think we'll have this book as a book we use within some of our small groups. We have 24 of them. Yeah. So, I mean, I hope again, we, I hope you get all the opportunities and you're able to do it as one person building a tribe that God wants to put in front of you. So I'm going to go back to my friend, Ryan. He had a, he had another great question here. He said, chapter nine kingdom without the King. You talk about witness, the fear, confusion, and tribalism of our post-Christian age. We have reasons to wish to turn the tide. He said, can you describe a deeper level, the sea of faith you refer to that you see as more enduring than our current cultural moment? Well, there was a, a poet back in the 19th century uh, called Matthew Arnold. And, and he wrote a poem called Dover beach and uh, he was talking about, even in 1851, he was talking about how the, the sea of faith was once at full tide. And now he, he talks about its long melancholy withdrawing roar as though we're, we're now at low tide, which is extraordinary because he was saying that in 1851. And they, they literally did a census in 1851 in the UK and, and discovered that in England anyway, half the population was in church on a Sunday. <laughs> and he, he felt like, oh, the tide is out on faith. And so, but, but ever, ever since um, this poem called Dover Beach, that has been a kind of uh, uh, an analogy for, for what happens with faith. Uh, there is there has been a long withdrawing melancholy roar as the the, you know, the tide is out on on Christian faith. But of course, the thing about tides is they don't only go out, do they? Tides also come in, and the the whole history of the church has not been this sort of monolithic idea that you know in three twelve A.D. Constantine in you know the Roman Empire as the as the emperor converts to Christianity and Christianity had you know un, you know untrammeled success and supremacy until about 1962 in which you know the the success of the church kind of you know falls off a cliff and and down we come that that is not the history of the church the history of the church is a tide that goes out and comes in goes out and comes in goes out and comes in and so much of my research historically was unearthing things like, you know, in the Middle Ages, which we, we kind of think that everybody was just in church in the Middle Ages, and absolutely not. And sometimes, you know, sometimes bishops were shooing people out of church because it, it had become such a zoo. You know, the bishop would sort of round up people and say, everybody should come to church for once. And they would sort of get to church and, and you know, it was absolute zoo. And the bishop would then shoo everybody out again. Okay, don't don't come back for another couple of years until you've learned your manners. And then, come back. you know, like we we tend to think that the age of faith is behind us, and now we're in this age of reason, and 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 you know, faith can never take hold again. And it's just not true, mm. you know. Right when the Wesleys and, and Whitfield got going for the Great Awakening, you used the word Great Awakening. I mean, the church was in such a sorry state, like six people took communion at St. Paul's Cathedral in London on Easter Sunday. Mm. Six people um, were in church on Easter Sunday morning at St. Paul's Cathedral in London in the year that the Great Awakening got going. Wow. Right? That's <laughs> like, fascinating. The sea of faith has often been out. 
<laughs> but tides, the tides don't only go out. Tides so also crazy. come in. And I, I want people to get a, a hunger for for what might be if we if we just learn some lessons from the past and by the holy spirit take hold of the faith that is in jesus and and, and get out there and proclaim him mm. let's close with this i'm ditching people are probably gonna be mad that i ditched the uh, rapid five which are kind of some sillier quick hitting answers but i really like where we are and i think it's too meaty to turn around and go light when we're at this good a spot but i, I would say three categories of people listen to this quite a bit we have pastors we have business leaders and we have parachurch ministry leaders. What would you say to them maybe in 60 seconds, a word of encouragement, like, hey, as a community, let's really get this right, loving a hurting, broken, non-Christian, secular world, and we don't mm. want to be wrong in this arena. What would that wrong arena be as well? I was at a church recently in, in Wales, and there was a, a police officer. Um, he's a Christian. He, he came to a whole day of teaching that I did around this stuff. And at the end, he, he was just in tears. And he, he just said, it's so good to not feel ashamed about being a Christian. And he told me some stories about, you know, the diversity, inclusion and equity kind of um, mandates that are on him, as, you know, as a police officer and the police force was sort of mandating, you know, rainbow this and rainbow that and gay pride this and gay pride that. And, and he just felt very oppressed as a Christian and seeing the difference it makes to say, you know, where, where do we get the idea that diversity or inclusion or equity were in any sense, good things we've, we've come to this post-Christian idea of diversity, inclusion, and equity, and it's taken some of the Christian ideas and it's detached them from the Christian story mm. and distorted them a little bit, but we're, we're left with this Christianized Christian-ish, but detached, distorted thing. And just doing the compare and contrast between that and the original vision of the Jesus revolution, which has produced the most diverse, inclusive and equitable movement that society has ever seen. And he's suddenly, he's, he's suddenly proud to be a Christian again. Suddenly he doesn't have shame in sharing his faith. And that's, that's what I really want to do. I, I, I want us to be proud of Jesus, to be proud of our faith, to be, to be the sort of people who own our Christianity, who, who wear it proudly, not, not because we are good at singing Jesus' song. We're not. We're terrible at singing Jesus' song, but he has given us such a beautiful song to sing. And I, I want Christians to enjoy that song again mm. and to start to join in a little bit with, with, some, with some gusto. Wow. So much good there. Glenn, I wish we had another hour to talk. This is, I, I hope at some point sooner than later, you're willing to come back and I want to hear about what's next. And I'm sure there's next coming. And if you ever get anywhere close to the States and certainly close to the, the great Buckeye state of Ohio, I would love some time with you. So where can people know more about what's going on with you? What's the best outlets for them to find you, whether that's Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, whatever they need to go to website to find out more. Great. Uh, Speak Life is the name of my organization. So Speak Life UK on uh, Twitter and Facebook uh, and on TikTok. You can follow me uh, personally. I am at, at Glenn Scrivener. Uh, Twitter is usually the place or X as we are now being forced <laughs> right. to call it. <laughs> you know, it was funny on my phone the other day. It was showing up like if you clicked it, it would be the black X. If you didn't click it, mm -hmm. it was just in the little separated category thing. It was still showing Twitter. They finally got that figured out. But I thought this is so weird there. It's it's clearly X pull out from it it's still the blue twitter sign so go figure that's that's probably creating a whole lot yeah. of messes for people in this world as such a small 
minor thing. But uh, Glenn, really appreciate you being on here. Thanks for making this easy. Love your heart. Love your passion. Love your willingness to not be afraid to grab things by the throat. And uh, hopefully there's more interacting for you and I to do later. I'd love that. Thank you so much, Jeff. Have a great day, folks. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at gatheringmiamivalley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Rise FM Podcast Network.